0: We turn to the book of Job, Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. There were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. It was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Sons of God, of course, referring to the angels first of all. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And Satan answered the Lord, and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabines fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said. Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men. They are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. As far as the reading of the passage, our text consists of verses 1 and 8, and then also of 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And then in 8, the Lord brings this to Satan's attention. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And then there's verse 5. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Commonly, when one turns to the book of Job, One does that to consider his suffering, what he suffered according to the will of God, one I suppose might say from the hand of Satan, but according to God's will and permission, and again I say his will, what he suffered. And how he suffered it with a spirit of submission without charging God foolishly. But this morning, we turn to Job as a pattern from a different perspective, not a pattern to us of how we are to suffer and receive from the hand of the Lord such suffering, But a pattern for spiritual qualities, because that's also in the text. One who feared the Lord and eschewed evil. And how these qualities came to bear in the end upon his being a parent and being a father. Of a covenantal sort. And what describes a parent and a father from a covenantal sort, of course, is what you find in verse 5 the making of sacrifices and sanctifying one's children and doing this continually. Job, you understand, was a remarkable specimen of grace. He sets before us what God can and does do to a man who is the man of his choosing. But also it sets forth what and how faith is to display itself and to come to Expression as it's laid out here in how God commends to Satan the spiritual qualities of Job that there is none like him in the earth, that he's one of a special caliber. But you do understand, beloved, amongst the saints and believers, he shouldn't be of special caliber. He's for our consideration. But we mustn't say, well, you know, that's Job. What can you expect from me, Lord? I'm no Job. Oh. So you don't have the same Holy Spirit. You don't receive the same grace. There's just certain special saints, you know, like Elijah, who could pray that there be no rain and They're exceptional. Remember what James says about Elijah, a man of like passions. What is true of Elijah should also be true of God's people. And in that same chapter, makes mention, James does, of Job. Who has not heard of the patience of Job, says James. And now, James says, I want you to consider this Job, because as Job was by grace in the Holy Spirit, you and I as Christians ought to be also. Because the same God who saved and sanctified and set apart Job by Christ Jesus has saved and sanctified us. Is it not so? And so Job, this pattern for us of a God-fearing man, though I have entitled the sermon Functioning as a God-fearing Parent, because I want to deal with that, especially in the second point. So Job, functioning as a God-fearing believer and then also as parent, his remarkable spiritual qualities, his parental intercession, and displaying a noteworthy patience. This he did Continually, that's also instructive, isn't it? As one reads through chapter 1 of the book of Job, one cannot help but be struck that there was something altogether remarkable about this man, Job. And by that I don't have reference simply to the fact that he was remarkably rich. Though the text tells us he was remarkably rich. The richest of all the men in the East. And he lived amongst, of course, many unbelieving pagans. And by his being the richest man in the East, God was making a testimony that it's this Job who's worshipping the true creator. Because men would know back then, that if this man Job had all this wealth, it must be from the God whom he has worshipped. He must be worshipping the true God, to have all these possessions. Remarkable, but that's not what I have reference to, simply, nor even how remarkable he was in his suffering as he received these things from the hand of God, all this news, one after the other, and in all this he did not charge God foolishly, and according to the text, sin not, remarkable. What I have in mind is this remarkable assertion by the Holy Scriptures that God boasts of Job in heaven. A sinful man on earth is commended by God before the face of the angels in heaven. I find that remarkable. Remarkable. Don't you? What a remarkable specimen of grace, this Job, was to have God speak well of one in heaven before Satan, not only, but the sons of God and perhaps the saints already in heaven hearing this too. It's striking, you know, That in the Old Testament, Satan was allowed to return to the courts of heaven. God suffered it to be so. This proud, arrogant, devilish, wicked so-and-so. God suffered it to be so in the first place, undoubtedly, to remind those in heaven that The the redemption had not yet occurred and their redemption had not yet taken place, that there was yet a work that had to be accomplished on their behalf to give them the righteous right to heaven more than simply God's word that it should be so. And, I'm convinced, God suffered it to be so, to remind Job that there's coming the great Son of Man, Who's going to put an end to this, Satan? I suffer it until there comes from the woman, the seed, the great son of man, who will drive you from the courts of heaven and shut your mouth at last. Don't forget, Satan goes there as the accuser of the brethren, to strut himself, his to strut himself before the angels themselves, that he feared no one, not God himself, and was not intimidated, but to bring accusations. We read of that in chapter 12 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, which speaks, of course, of this man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, caught up into God and to his throne. That's the ascension of Christ, as it? in verse 5. And then we read, there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon And the dragon fights with his angels, but the dragon prevails not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And he's cast out, the old serpent and the devil, cast out of the earth. And he heard a loud voice saying, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ, his promised Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused them before our God day and night. In other words... God suffered Satan to appear, and without fail, Satan would say, what is this Samson doing here, that adulterer who served his sentence? And this David, who not only committed adultery, but murder. He committed murder as well, as I recall. And this Rahab, her life of harlotry. And even Abraham, you know how many times he lied to save his skin? And a drunkard besides Noah, and the list goes on. And what are they doing here? Where's... Not only why are they here, and I thought, Jehovah God, you were a righteous God. He didn't just come to slander the brethren, beloved. He came to lay accusations at the feet of God. Where is thy righteousness? How in thy righteousness can these sinners, these who have committed such great sins, appear in heaven? And you simply wipe the slate clean? On what basis? Where is the righteousness? It had not... It, of course, occurred in history, had it. God had them there anticipating what would occur. But he comes as one to charge God himself in his defiance. He reminds one of all the, for all the world, of a a young man going to high school and knows what the rules are and just flagrantly breaks them and defies them and then is expelled from school on Friday and Monday appears back, at recess, to go up and down the halls and say, I'm not afraid. I fear no one. I'm here anyway. And you who are still in school, you ought to join me. I have freedom. Here you have to go to school, hour after hour, and do what others tell you to do. But not me. I'm free. I can do what I will. Defiant, bold, and refuses to see he's going to pay a price down the road for not having this education and for his attitude itself. That's Satan. To this Satan, God puts the question, where have you been, Satan? What have you been up to? Whence comest thou? And Satan in his sass says, from going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down, I don't have to tell you. I go where I want. I go what I please. Whom I to tell you? And to that Defiance into that sass, God responds by saying, hast thou considered my servant Job? Job, I know exactly where you've been. You've been focusing on Job, haven't you? This man on the earth whom you can't get to depart from my ways, to fall lamentably and to follow a way of sin. You are doing your devilish best, aren't you, Satan? And he, by his sacrifices and prayers day by day, has been withstanding you. And you are frustrated and you are angry, aren't you, Satan? And you will challenge me. Really, Satan. Here is this man on earth who was a sinful man at that and yet by my grace stands against your temptations and will not succumb. And you're going to challenge me? Really, Satan? You can't even overcome this man, can you? God is poking his pride. He knows exactly what he's saying by these words. He reads Satan like a book. He knows Satan cannot withstand these words. You've tried your devilish best, haven't you, Satan? Satan. But he by grace and prayer has withstood you, hasn't he? And you would challenge me? Shall I laugh? And Satan responds, oh, sure he has. But you know why? You've given him so many blessings, so many enrichments. Take those enrichments away from him. And you will see a different man, a different Job. Take your reins off me. And that's interesting, you know. For all his power, Satan knows He's limited by God. As he defies God, he knows he's limited by God. You will go just so far, Satan, and no further. My will prevails. That's good to know, isn't it? He's a monster. He's powerful. We can be like clay to him. Still, God is in control. You will go just so far, Satan. Christ now says that you will just just go just so far, Satan, and no further. For no one shall pluck my own from my hand. And here in this first chapter, you may touch all his belongings, all his possessions, even his children themselves, but not yet his health. The next chapter is health even, and his skin. And and that also, Job, by grace, will, of course, withstand from making him fall into willful transgression. But that's what's going on here. And God commends this Job to Satan to prick his pride and to begin this history with us in mind that from this history, you, the church of all ages, will, of course, course, learn special lessons. But a sinner, Job certainly was a sinner. But as a believer who was saved by grace, he was able to withstand Temptation and Satan's devices, and by the grace that he sought and the operations of the Spirit, he was able to display himself as the friend of God, as a child of God. We do. Virtues of God, you know. As believers, we reflect virtues of God. Love. Love. Loving others in a self denying, in a self giving way, returning good for evil. That's a child, you know, reflecting his father as God in Christ to us return good for evil. That's also the mark of a God fearing man who seeks and finds the grace he needs day by day. But now let's look at those spiritual qualities that are listed. Here in verses 1 and 8, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Now you understand in the theme I said that these are qualities that are to reflect, be reflected in the God-fearing parent. You understand one doesn't have to be a parent to have these qualities, These should be the qualities of every believer, a perfect and an upright man or person, one that feareth the Lord and escheweth evil. And if one marries and has children, then it will come into play in one's family and child-rearing as well. But first of all, these are spiritual qualities that ought to come to display and, and, and characterize every last one of us. Perfect and upright? What you have here is two pairs. Perfect and upright go together, and God-fearing and eschewing evil go together. You can easily show that. A perfect and upright man is not a sinless man. Scripture commonly uses that word perfect, but usually when it uses the word perfect, it doesn't even have sinless in mind. Sometimes it does, but the context will will determine that. But usually what it has in mind is one who is whole, mature, and consistent, you see, That's what it calls perfection or complete. In other words, what one confesses, that's how one lives. There's a consistency, a harmony between what comes from one's mouth and what says about oneself, I am a child of God, and how one lives. That's a perfect man. That is, that's a mature child of God. Grow up, one may say, because... Until one is spiritually mature, there's inconsistencies As one goes from childhood through youth and so on. And then one should stabilize as an adult, one who is mature. And there should be this, I'll say it again, a consistency, a sincerity that shows itself. And one walks by one's integrity. And then one can be called upright. I mean, one's walk of life, of course. One does not stumble and fall into this ditch or to that ditch. One is sober and makes progress in spiritual in, in, in life and walks on the straight and narrow in an upright manner, in a way that has the approval of God, if you will. Have in mind honesty, this matter of honesty in a community where you're known, one does business, one is seen, known by the community, It's good to have a reputation of being honest. I'm sure Job had that in the community in which he lived. He was a man of his word. And if he said this was what he was going to do, and this was the transaction that he lived according to his transaction and his word, he didn't have to look for deception and whether he was trying to trick you and get get more out of you than really he had coming. This is an honest man. And he was honest, beloved, even concerning himself and his own weaknesses and sins. And by honest, I don't mean he was honest about himself to excuse himself in sin. That can happen too, you know. I'll be very honest with you. I'm a weak and sinful man. So what do you expect? Yeah, I know I do this and this and you can't trust me, but that's my human nature. I'm honest. It's true, isn't it? That's who I am. You just got to live with it. And one excuses, one uses honesty to excuse one's own character. That's not confession, beloved, that's just admission. That's acknowledgement. Confession acknowledges it and grieves over it and seeks to turn from it. And if elders work with a man, he said, yeah, I'm guilty of that, but you know, I'm just a weak and sinful man. Or he says, yes, I acknowledge I, I, I have done that. And the next question, the elder says, and now what are you going to do about it? Just acknowledging it so is not enough. Just because you've acknowledged it doesn't mean you're sorry for it. What are you going to do about it? Your behavior must show that you are sorry indeed and turning from it. And that was Job, you see. He was honest, even concerning himself, but in such a way that he would live in the way of what we call daily conversion, confession and pursuit of godliness, in a sincere and a sincere and consistent way. And his children observe that. If there's one thing true about youth, as you and I know, as we were once youth, youth expect consistency. You require this of us? Oh, that's wonderful. How do you live? Do you live according to what you require of us? Because if you don't, we lose all our respect. This, you, you require this of us as a parent or a teacher, and then you go do that on your own. And you've just under, undermined all of the respect and really all of your authority. But not Job. His children saw him. What Job preached, what Job required, accordingly Job lived. He was a perfect and an upright man who walked according to his integrity, before the face of God. And that's where that phrase, "One that feareth God and escheweth evil, comes in. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, of course, runs like a thread through the whole of the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. What does it it mean to fear the Lord, to be numbered with the God-fearing? Often a man will say... Kind of just as an aside, it does not mean one is afraid of God. Well, I'm here to tell you, oh yes, it does. There's a sense in which the Lord one who fears the Lord is afraid of God. A sense. I'll come to that. The great emphasis, of course, is what we're normally told one who fears the Lord doesn't live in dread of God. Notice the word dread. And say afraid. Dread. Doesn't live in dread of God, but has God in awe, reverence. He sees the greatness and glory of God. He walks before the face of God. It's, we live in a day and age, you know, a religious day and age, with a veneer of Christianity, and in this, too many of too many churches in our, our day and age, they don't want to use that phrase, the fear of the Lord, or to be God fearing. It brings too much of God into the. Into the picture, They're more interested in, well, how do you relate to men? And uh, do you appear to be uh, loving of, of, of your neighbor? But they don't want to make a man so God-conscious and make a man stand before the face of God because then suddenly religion becomes very serious, doesn't it? And not living according to one's faith becomes very serious as well when you're dealing with God and God in the picture as the righteous and the holy one. Scripture uses the phrase often to describe the believer. One of the main characteristics is that a believer is numbered with the God-fearing, has this high conception of Jehovah God. I'll put it this way, beloved, Job was a Calvinist. Now that's speaking out of time, of course. Calvin wouldn't be born for a few thousand years, but you know what I mean immediately. He had this high conception of God, Job did as to his sovereignty, as to his, his greatness, as to the God who determined all things in time and history and worked it out according to his own sovereign will, even men and their destinies. If there's one thing that dominates the book of Job, it's this majesty of God, isn't it? You can go from, you can go from chapter to chapter to chapter, even amongst Job's friends, and they were conscious of the majesty and the, and the greatness of Jehovah God. But you go to the end of the book, to chapter verse. Chapter 28, and the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkeneth the counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up thy loins like a man. Answer me, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding, who laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest whereupon the foundations are fastened. When the morning stars, what a lovely phrase, when the morning stars, the angels beloved, sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Evidently, The angels already existed when God called the creation into being and into existence to show them, to display before them his might and majesty. And the sons of God shouted for joy. I'm convinced, beloved, when God makes the new heavens and the new earth, having dissolved this old creation and burned it with fire to purify it, We will be those who will witness the makings of the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be numbered with the sons of God, and we will shout in joy at the glory and the splendor of this God who has recreated all things and has undone for us by the power of the Son of Man what we brought upon creation, our new home. This God of glory, this God of majesty, take heed regard not iniquity. Behold, God exists is exalted by his power, who is likened to him, who hath enjoined his ways. Remember that thou magnify his work. For God is great, we know him not, neither can his years be numbered and searched out. The majesty of God, the God-fearing man, as I said, labeled a Calvinist, this high conception of God in his might and in his saving power and will as well. But there is this aspect also, beloved, to the fear of the Lord. Not only awe and reverence, but the word is fear, because one who fears the Lord is afraid of God. From this point of view, to hear his disapproval, to have God become angry with one as a child, which he can, and does do from time to time, doesn't he? Because one loves him and desires his approval, and one fears his disapproval. Like a child does his father, whom he loves. And a child, as he grows up, wants his father's approval. And if he disobeys, he knows he's going to have his father's disapproval. And if his father becomes angry, then that one better... Watch out, I had a father that way. I loved him. But I didn't exactly care to make him angry because I had willfully disobeyed. He had a way of bringing wood and leather to the relationship now and again with five active boys in a house. He found it necessary to, to do that, to teach us what was what and where was where. And one feared to arouse his indignation by being foolish. But us with God. As Moses said, God was angry with me for your sake, and I may not even enter into the promised land. A God fearing man, you see, because he desired God's approval. And that's the God fearing man. Not men. We don't fear men. What men may say, their estimation. The God-free man says, you may estimate and assess me as you will. In the end, it's not what you say. It's what God says that counts. And accordingly, I will live. And part of that living, beloved, is that one eschews evil. You can see the connection. You have this high estimation of God and desire to magnify him. Then one will certainly oppose that which defames his name and what defiles His holiness, that's part of the fear of the Lord, to eschew evil, to keep it at a distance, to want nothing to do with it, and to oppose it, even to condemn it. It's interesting, you know, it's called evil, not just sin. Sin is disobedience to God, but evil puts this cast on it. It's that which has the devil's approval... and I will not engage in that which has the devil's approval, because what has the devil's approval is going to, in the end, defame God's name, and it's going to do injury and damage to self, relationship to God, and perhaps even to others, and so it's called evil. We must keep ourselves from that which is evil, and, beloved, he who fears the Lord and eschews evil keeps himself from that which spews corruption and evil. And our devices that we have, which can be, of course, septic systems, can't they? And when drinks of them, and one is not drinking water and milk, but one is drinking that which is defiled and will make one spiritually sick. From that we must keep ourselves... That was Job, you see, in his day and age, to keep himself from that which would defile God's holiness and defame God's name and keep it at a distance and say no to it and teach his children to do likewise. And they could see their father lived that way, so he not only instructed them, but he was exemplary as well. Such is this man, Job, whom God himself commends as this remarkable specimen of grace, a pattern beloved whose life we observe and read about and then seek the same grace and operations of the Holy Spirit day by day. And this he brought to bear upon his his home and his Household, this God-fearing man. We read that he rose early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them. And he sanctified them. He sent and sanctified them when their days of feasting came about says gone about, but when their days of feasting came about. Job's great concern, you see, with his children was not simply that they have wealth and be a success in everything to which their hands turned and have a name in the community. That was not his great concern. His great concern was where his children stood with God and that they were on good terms with God. That was the important thing. And so these sacrifices and sanctifying them. Job, you see... Reminds one of what you read in Third John chapter. Well, it's the only chapter, of course, but verse, verse three, are there about. That that my my little children, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in truth. No greater joy than my children walk in truth. One has no greater grief than when one's children walk in sin and disobedience. The deep grief. A deep grief that one never forgets and prays about, I would think. But if one's children walk in truth, you know, that's just not automatic. Well, you know, I baptized them. I brought them to a good church. They ought to turn out all right. I'll let the, the preacher and the teachers of the Christian school take care of that. I have other things to tend to. That's not the covenantal parent. It's the obligation responsibility of others while I tend to my, my business and take care of my own life. If children are going to walk in truth, according to truth, they have to be taught, by, taught that, and particularly by one's own parents, father and mother, tending to that in the home that takes labor. God uses those as means, doesn't he? Even that instruction in the covenantal home, and that's the kind of home Job had, his, as is plain from the description that he sanctified his children and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. That's a striking word, you know, sanctified them. From a certain point of view, you would say, we can't sanctify our children, can we? That's a matter of the heart. That's the work of the Spirit. Yes, it is. But there's a sense in which parents also sanctify their children in the sense of setting them apart for the service of God and doing all that they can to be used by God to point their children in the service of God. It begins, beloved, by baptism. When parents baptize their children, they are, in essence, sanctifying them. They are setting them apart for the service of God... And knowing that this baptism itself, water baptism, won't do it, they add to the water baptism, we add to the water baptism, the prayers that what the water baptism symbolizes will be a reality in the life and heart of our children. But we, by that baptism, have sanctified them. It can be said we have set them apart, and we're going to do our utmost to point them in the direction in what it means to serve the Lord and to even reflect that one is a child of God and a benefactor of His grace and holy Spirit. What I find so striking about the form of baptism is that this isn't only the understanding and obligation of the parent who presents the child, of the parents who present the child, but of the whole congregation. It's interesting, you know, in the prayer of thanksgiving in the form of baptism, the congregation is praying this, not just the parents. The congregation is praying this. We beseech thee through the same son of thy love, thou we pleased always to govern these baptized children by thy Holy Spirit. That's not just the parents, beloved. You were praying that, child by child, baptized. We beseech thee. Thou wilt be pleased to govern this child or these baptized children by thy Holy Spirit, that they may be piously and religiously educated. It doesn't just have reference to the Christian schools, though it may have reference also to the Christian schools, but to the parents in the home. Increase and grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice this. And live in all righteousness under our only teacher, King and high priest, Jesus Christ, and manfully fight against and overcome sin. The devil and his whole dominion to the end that they may eternally praise and magnify thee. Notice, manfully fight against and overcome sin, the devil and his whole dominion. That's the whole congregation praying for that. And you do understand, beloved, your and my responsibility doesn't stop with that prayer. Well, I, I observe the baptism. My responsibility towards a child is done. Now it's the parents. I oh, no as congregation, with that child. Child of another. They have primary responsibility, but those who observe the baptism and have offered this prayer also have an accountability, even towards that child baptized. He's a member of the family of Christ. One of my brothers and sisters, having the same spirit as I do, we're related, not by blood, but by the Holy Spirit we are related. And I also will speak good words to this child as he grows and encourage, and if need be, even bring some reproofs and rebukes to encourage him in the way of godliness. But the primary responsibility, of course, falls upon the parent, and so here upon Job, who sanctified his children. He had his sons circumcised without without a doubt. But more than that, he sanctified them by his instruction in teaching them what it meant to be set apart for the service of God and to eschew evil. Remind them you walk not only before the face of God, but there is an evil one who will seek to lead you astray. And that's why he even offers in this prayer, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. By that cursing God, he doesn't mean they have shaken their fist in the face of God. Not what he's fearing here, but they have been inconsistent in their life, we've made a confession in this community, and they have brought dishonor to God's name by some sin, foolish speaking or transaction or whatever. And so I pray for them, Lord, wake them up to that, that they may be be reminded of that and cease that and turn from that. It's interesting, you know, he did not deny his children having a good time and didn't say you couldn't come together and have what's called a party and feast and have a banquet and enjoy the good things of, of God, even with respect to wine. But he was a wise enough man to know that while one can enjoy the good things of life, and even a little wine, it can also go overboard and one drinks too much, then foolishness can, can occur, even amongst one's own children and family. God, keep my children from such, keep me from that, that I'm an example in that direction either but he didn't deny his children could enjoy the life and the good things of this life, but with moderation and self-discipline nonetheless so that one would not bring somehow shame to the name one carries as a Christian, as a believer, as a child of God in the community and even in the body of Christ. But especially notice... He makes these sacrifices, and of course, with those sacrifices, he's offering prayer. And he's praying for what? When we pray for our children, what do we pray for? We pray for their salvation. That is all that we're interested in is that they get to heaven. I want my children to end up in heaven, Lord, make sure they get to heaven. Yes, we desire that our children be someday in heaven with us, with the sons of God, and in that great day when all the morning stars will sing together once again. We're interested in more than that. We're interested in their living godly in this life, aren't we? Of course, we are. We pray for them. Lord, work by thy grace that they walk in a way that shows They are the benefactors of grace and of thy Holy Spirit and also are numbered with the God-fearing and live for thy approval and not simply what men may say this way or that way. We pray for their salvation, that they may live as, as the saved and certainly forgiveness because he says they may have sinned and Lord, he intercedes, you see. He's an example to them, but he also intercedes for them. And the question arises, well, can a father just intercede for his child? And since I prayed for the sins of my child, and he's a young man by now, well, even though he hasn't prayed, the sins are forgiven. No, of course. Of course not. We're not priests from that point of view. My son, I've prayed for you. Thy sins be forgiven thee. When he prays for that, what he's praying for, of course, is that God will work in the hearts of his children by his grace to wake them up to their own sins and foolishness, whatever they may be. And they may express themselves in a repentance and then a pursuit of godliness, departing from away, leaving a sin behind and walking in the ways of the Lord. He's praying that by, by the sacrifices he prays for them, but he also prays with them. The God's fearing parent prays with his children. Doesn't he? Don't we, don't they? for our children, with them, in the home. And our children hear us pray. And sometimes I think we ought to pray for them specifically. If I look back on my old child rearing, I have one regret, more than one regret, but one especially. I did not make mention of their names personally at some occasion when I prayed. Their birthday, some special day. Praying for them by name that they could hear the heart of a father in love for them and pointing them in the direction of God. These children of Job knew he was praying. Well, when you make sacrifices, the smoke goes up. And as they were going to the house of feasting, they could see the smoke of the sacrifices going up and saying, oh, yes, Father is praying for us again. He has remembered us. And he's reminding us even as the smoke goes up, have we remembered? Are we doing what Father has taught us to do and as we ought to be doing before the face of God. Interceding, you see, based on the blood, because Job knew very well just that I intercede and just I pray for this isn't going to give power with God just because I have asked. I, as a sinner, must ask on the basis of shed blood, on the basis of what another does in my stead and on my Behalf, And so there's the shedding of the blood, and that ties in with the righteousness of God, doesn't it? It's the answer even to Satan with respect to those who are in heaven. What right do they have to be here? There's coming the shedding of blood. A sentence for these sinners will be served, and in such a way they have the right to be here, and the mouth of the accuser will be shut once and for all. So based upon the blood, the sacrifices God has Ordained. He makes his petitions and is pleasing to God and you understand this he did continually, just a little phrase tucked in there could just be you might say just be absent, just to say he sinned and cursed God in their hearts now this there was a day when the, but there was a day when the sons of God came together, but scripture slips in that little phrase, thus did job Continually. A reminder this wasn't just a once or irregular occurrence, but this was a day by day occurrence. The heart of a parent for children and beseeching God and teaching children the way. You have heard the patience of Job. We normally tie that in with the suffering and his submitting to the suffering. And then enduring the suffering, well, here is another patience. And endurance isn't simply passive, beloved, it's active also. One persists and persists and persists. Like the parable, knocking at the door and refusing to go away until the one on the other side of the door answers one. That kind of a persistence, that kind of a patience and not being easily turned away like a mother reminding her children as they go out of the door as teenagers, remember who you are and whom you are to represent. Yeah, yeah, you've said that a thousand times. I have, haven't I? Well, here's 1,001. Here's 1,001. Remember who you are and whom you represent and how you are to live. You walk before the face of God and there's an evil one who would just as soon have you walk in foolishness and he will bring injury to yourself because that's what he enjoys. Keep yourself from him, I pray. That's the implication of that warning and reminder, isn't it, mothers? And let the youth take heed. Patience, persistence, and one may wander from the way And the prayers do not cease, beloved. Have you heard of the Son of Tears? There's a book out, you know, The Son of Tears. It's a biography of the life of Augustine, the church father, whom we sometimes know as Saint Augustine. Church father Augustine. Tremendously gifted and intellectual. His mother was a Christian. His father was an unbeliever. And he wanted nothing to do with the Christian religion. That was the religion of the weak and those who weren't challenged intellectually. And he pursued the intellectual and the philosophical and had a woman by his side whom he did not marry with whom he had a son. And he lived in open fornication almost to defy the church at that time and his Christian upbringing. But his mother, Monica, sent him letter after letter after letter pursuing him as the hound from heaven, as it were. You remain, remember, you remain in my prayers, my son, that you also may come to the Christian faith. And one day, lo and behold, it was as though he heard a voice in a garden, to take up and read. And there was a Bible there, and he read it. He had heard preaching. He had heard preaching by Ambrose. And the word took hold, and like Saul of Tarsus, he was converted and became one of the great church fathers, one from whom John Calvin learned much, to whom John Calvin turned again and again in the understanding of the doctrines of the Holy Scriptures and the truths of grace, meaning the power of grace, as well as to be displayed in the life of those who are God's children. So, beloved, patience in prayer, persistence following Job. For ourselves that we may be exemplary, where we have failed, dear Lord, forgive, but then for our children and our children's children. And know this, God being the God of the covenant, says, I will use even that as a means. I will use even sometimes crooked sticks to draw straight lines, weak means to accomplish good things. Lord, may it be so. May we also, beloved, be specimens of grace and God's, and may it be, even at times, remarkable specimens of grace. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the sacrifice of Christ to remove our imperfections and to lay hold upon that which is good and powerful in his Holy Spirit, to use us as weak means to accomplish good and lasting things. We pray, Father, for thy grace. Give us contentment with thy will and to walk in the ways of obedience in the fear of thy name, which is the beginning of wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.